welcome to this Highlights podcast from the Cambridge Bright Club Endangered Species. Coming up, we've got fantastic foul-mouthed poetry on all things from lobsters to nightclub toilets from Sabrina Marfuz, and we'll hear a cautionary tale of how chocolate might be banned in the future. But first, it's all aboard for a trip on the transportation of the past with researcher Simon Abernethy. Hello. Uh, I'm Simon Abernethy, just in case I forget my own name. Um, I'm a historian. I study public transport in London in the sort of 1910s, 1920s. Um, Public transport, a well-known bastion of comedy. Um, And I just thought I'd share some of the things that I know about public transport back then with what we've got now. Um, So one of the big things they have in the the 1900s is a so-called pirate bus. Now, sadly, sadly, this is not a bus with a Jolly Roger on the back, with a, ma- a drive with a wooden leg and an eye patch going, Arabiti, where are you going today? Um, geographically confused pirate. Um, basically, back then, anyone, anyone could run a bus. So it's like any of you buying a bus and tomorrow running the City One service. And the authorities are just like, oh, that, that sounds okay, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Loads of unlicensed bus drivers. Um, and the way you make this pay is that you've got to fill your bus with passengers. And that works okay when you've just got one bus. The problem arises when you've got one pirate bus behind another pirate bus. Because the pirate bus behind knows he's not going to get any passengers at the next stop. So he tries to overtake the bus in front. Now the bus in front knows he can't let that guy overtake. And obviously trying to manoeuvre a bus into a high-speed overtaking manoeuvre is not a safe business. So what you wind up with in London, a bus is doing about 50 miles an hour, racing each other to various stops. There's buses blocking roads to try and stop other buses. One bus winds up a tree. Um, And all this is compounded because... At this point, you start getting double-decker buses start being introduced. None of the bridges in London are designed to take a double-decker bus. And so what you get is a sort of Victorian-style live-and-let-die bus chase scene where the bus goes under the bridge at speed and the whole top deck just comes off. Um, And you laugh, but the last time this happened in London was 2007. A A hundred years of bus operation and still we have not learned the lessons. Um, The other thing about buses, which is vaguely interesting, is that before the First World War, you're not allowed to stand on a bus. Um, The Metropolitan Police can actually take you off a bus for standing on it. Um, The reason being that it's considered unsafe. This is the same period in history where if you have a blockage in your chimney, you can send an eight-year-old child up to clear it. It's like, oh, yes, little Timmy, yes, he can go up the chimney, but no, we can't let him stand on the bus. That might be unsafe. Um, So leaving buses alone for the moment, um, because I mainly study trains. Trains, glorious trains. Um, Actually, recently, uh, trains have been on on iPlayer a lot, because Dan Snow's History of the Railways has been on. And um, the problem with history programs is they try and sex it up a lot. And so the opening to this this program was Dan Snow stood in a valley looking up at a viaduct. And a train was careening over the viaduct. And in the background, the sun was rising and it was glorious. And Dan Snow was going, when I see a train, I see Britain's industrial heritage. When I see a train, I see Britain's greatest export. And I was sat there thinking, well, when I see a train, I just want to get a fucking seat. That's what I think, you know. I've seen a businessman race a toddler up a train just for the chance to sit on a luggage rack. That's it. That's the level of civility on trains. Um, 
And it's because they're, they're really busy, they're really full. And the congestion problem is nothing new. So in the 1920s, um, they first experienced rush hour. And so they asked the railway executives, well, what's, what's causing this? Why is this happening? And the rail executives came up with two, two ideas as to why there was rush hour. Number one, gardening. <laughs> and I was reading this document, and I was just, where the fuck are you going with this? And they basically argued that there was a gardening craze amongst working class men. So at half past five, every working class man was desperately trying to get to a home base, and this completely knocked out all of the public transport, with men with decking and fertilizer, and that was it. Their second reason, second reason was even better, second reason, women. Um, you, you think about it, when you're on a train, 50% of the passengers are women. You might have a, a good idea here. Um, and the idea, bizarrely, was that during the First World War, a lot of women had been munitions workers. And so lots of women were using public transport, more than ever before. And the railway executives argued that women were unused to using the underground and were so overcome by the awesomeness of what they were going. So they, they managed to get down to the station and then they're finally overcome on the train itself with the electric doors and all of this. But they just sort of stood there, stupefied by the magnificence of what was going on. So all the seats was empty, but every time a train pulled in, the doors opened, there was just a huddle of bemused women just trying to work out what was going on. Um, and unsurprisingly, these, these suggestions haven't been used since the 1920s because they're fucking ludicrous. Um, the, other, the other big difference between the, the 20s and now, well, even earlier than the 20s, is that people tend not to complain about the railways as much as they did. So I've been commuting up from London to Cambridge a lot recently, and every time I've arrived in Cambridge, there's always a group of people waiting to get to King's Lynn, and their train is always cancelled. And I did this commute for about three months, and every single time there was the same huddle of King's Lynn people, probably the same people over three months. Um, I think the train to King's Lynn is a myth. Um, people just desperately waiting there. And you know, the announcer would come on, the train's been cancelled, and you see, like, oh, fuck, this is wait another three weeks for the next one. Um, and we sort of just accept it. And you know, back in, back in the day, so to speak, that, that wasn't necessarily the case. So I did a lot of my research on a place called Edmonton in London, which was uh, about 900, a very big working class suburb, full of, you know, big working class lads, typically builders, labourers, that kind of people. And the railway company absolutely hated them. Because the railway company thought they swore, they smoked, they spat everywhere, they wrecked the carriages, and the railway company basically had enough. So what they did was they changed the way they sold tickets. So instead of being able to buy a ticket on the day, the railway company decided to sell all the tickets for the week on the Saturday before. So Monday morning comes, and about 500 blokes turn up for their ticket. And the guy at the ticket office goes, no, you can't have a ticket, because we changed the rules while you weren't looking. So ha ha ha, no, 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 no. Now there's a disagreement between the ticket clerk and the 500 builders. <laughs> which results in the builders hijacking the train <laughs> and getting into Liverpool Street anyway. The following day, following day, similar thing starts happening. This time the Metropolitan Police are involved, so they decide they're going to deploy a force of police officers to Liverpool Street Station to catch these guys. Now, the newspapers reckoned that in Liverpool Street, by about half past six, there were around 2,000 workmen passengers in Liverpool Street, all very, very cross. The Metropolitan Police deployed six officers <laughs> to deal with this problem. That's one officer per 333 very angry Victorian builders. 
And from looking at the newspaper, what happened was a bit like a scene from Zulu, whereby six policemen attempted to arrest various people, and 2,000 workmen passengers came down on them like a ton of bricks and threw them out of the station. And you see, nowadays, we just write a very angry letter of complaint. <laughs> Dear First Capital Clerk, I didn't like your services very much. You wouldn't throw a policeman out of station. Um, but the workmen weren't done. So they then trashed Liverpool Street Station. The policemen demanded reinforcements, so about 100 police officers now piled into Liverpool Street. By this point, the workmen had made their way into the taxi rank, flipped over a load of taxis, and built a barricade of taxis <laughs> to fend off the police. So the police are standing there, what the fuck are we supposed to do with this? At which point, one of them picks up a sandwich, one of the workmen picks up a sandwich, and throws it at an officer and takes his helmet off. Within about a minute, the officers have been pelted with about a thousand odd sandwiches from various directions. You've got workmen running around the corner to Greg's. Greg's, Greg's never did better business than they did that morning. You think a baguette is basically designed to be thrown. Um, you know, and that, if that hits you in the face, it hurts. Um, and at the end of the day, seven, seven people have been arrested. One 17-year-old boy arrested on the charge of assaulting a police officer with a baguette. Um, the charge being thrown out because the magistrate found the whole thing so ludicrous that he just couldn't bring himself to convict the poor guy. Um, but at the end of the day, they got a better train service. So what can we learn from the 1920s? Well, in conclusion, because historians always have to go in conclusion, um, number one, if you're ever on a really packed train, you know who to blame, and apparently it's women. And number two, if you ever have a problem with your railway company, the pen may be mightier than the sword, but the Greg's Chicken Club baguette <laughs> is liable to get a much better reaction. So anyway, thank you very much. And Andy Holding caught up with Simon to find out a bit more about his research into late 19th and early 20th century transport in London. How was public transport evolving at the time? It's obviously quite early on in the history of public transport. Yeah, you have huge, huge technological strides. So you're leaving the horse age, basically, and coming into what we would consider the modern era. So you start getting electric trains in 1890 um, in the tube. Uh, you have the Underground Railway from 1860, although it's all steam-powered. Um, you have motor buses, electric trams, all of this. Um, it's, it's a revolution in transport, just generally. I love the fact it's electric trams, and we can't do that very well now. Yeah, uh, the electric trams are kind of sad, because... Uh, there was an electric taxi as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there are all sorts of experiments with all sorts of things. Um, yeah, often with huge battery packs. I mean, just imagine proper sort of steampunk-style taxis going around, and they're not very successful. Um, in a sense, it's a shame, because the Victorians had this sort of electric transit system nailed down, and then in the 40s and 50s, we got rid of it, and now we're sort of considering how we could put it back, because it is much more environmentally friendly, and trams carry money, you know, way more people than buses can. Um, you know, we, we cocked it up a bit, I think. <laughs> um, so the underground clearly was quite a technical marvel at the time. I mean, how, how did people take that turning up? I mean, did they just avoid it and get confused by it? Or There's, initially, there is a Metropolitan Railway, which is the first underground railway, opens in 1863, and it's all powered by steam. So you've got steam trains running under the ground. And the public response is immense. You know, thousands of people just turn up just to take a ride on the train. Um, and but obviously, it's, a, it's an atmosphere, that, I say atmosphere, that's just charged with smoke and smut and steam. And, you know, the health officials are like, well, people can't travel in this because they'll suffocate. Um, and the Metropolitan come round and just say, well, actually, 
what we've created is a sort of underground spa. People <laughs> with asthma can come down and take in this invigorating atmosphere and they'll feel better. And they go around their staff and work out the death rate and they basically claim that you're better off in the steam-filled underground than you would be in a room full of lawyers smoking. So obviously the demographic was quite different back when you mentioned you um, part of your work is looking at class. Um, how, I mean, how do class compare to now? Well, initially, the railway companies are chasing sort of the middle classes, the middle and upper classes. Um, and Parliament basically obliged them to start running trains for working class people. So in 1889, we have the London County Council, which is the first London municipal council. Um, and they're very, very progressive. They're very liberal. And they're like, they're very philanthropic. And they're like, we're going to tackle this problem head on. And cheap transport is the best way of trying to solve this problem of slum housing in the centre. We're going to make it cheap. We're going to make them live out in the suburbs where they're going to have a house and a garden and it's all going to be, you know, hunky-dory. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, so you, you see a major shift in the demographic where more and more working class people are using these trains for the first time. Um, and that causes problems with the railway company. The other thing you get is more and more women starting to use the trains, especially working class women, um, which causes all sorts of sort of moral panic in the eyes of the authorities. These women are, you know packed in overcrowded trains with men. Is that just a social faux pas then? Women near men or women being pressed against men? What's the problem? Yeah, I think it's that sort of Victorian sort of moral high ground that this shouldn't really be happening. What can we learn from the trains back then to about trains today? Well, a huge amount. They're dealing with very similar problems that we have today. They're dealing with problems of overcrowding, how to deal with rush hour especially, um, how to make money. Because obviously <laughs> the railways now don't, don't make any money. They're all subsidised. Um, back then, they weren't subsidised. So they, they try and turn a profit. And how can you sort of balance your role as a monopoly, um, a monopoly provider of transport, with the need to make a, a quick buck and a profit? And then you've got the interaction with the council who say, you know, you have a social obligation to carry like working class people. And the railway companies are like, but they don't pay any money. They don't, they don't make any money for us. This is awful. Um, and the, the tension between those two are always quite, quite interesting to follow. I mean, one of the reasons, presumably, the whole thing's changed with the motor car and people being able to afford the motor car, more importantly, that uh, we can't... That they now the trains can't compete against the car, basically. Mm. Yeah. So that's presumably changed a lot of the income and how it's had to be structured. Oh, yeah. What you see is after the sort of 1920s... The 1920s, I think, are the high point for the underground. Um, and afterwards, you see a deterioration as people go on to, first of all, motor buses... Um, and then in the 50s and the 60s, there's this huge switch away to private car ownership. Um, and it's only recently that sort of the number of people using the underground system and public transport generally has reached the sort of level we used to expect in the 1920s. So what is your favourite part of the history about pu public transport? My favourite part is this interaction between the management um, and their passengers and just the way the management often perceive their passengers. Because nowadays, you, the railways are just trying to get as many people on as possible. That's it. That's how you, you make revenue. Yeah. Back then, it's about getting as many middle-class and upper-class people on your railway as possible and limiting, limiting the number of, inverted commas, scum that get on the carriages <laughs> with the nice passengers. Um, and, you know, sometimes the reactions are so over the top. So things like, you know, ghettoise the working classes, don't let them come here. Um, they're nicking all the stuff off the train, they're drinking on the trains, they're covered in filth, and we've had complaints from the first-class passengers that this is happening. And the working-class passengers get all over the show, 
I think the most, the biggest overreaction was one railway company had a ticket inspector who would run over the roof of the train <laughs> and basically swing into the compartments to check whether the workman passengers had the valid ticket. Um, a practice which unfortunately stopped when <laughs> ticket inspector in question came into contact with the edge of a tunnel. So how do you find this stuff out? Like, do you just read old newspapers or do you go further? Do people have diaries where they documented their train journeys to work? Uh, a bit of a mix. Uh, newspapers are all, always very handy. Um, parliamentary documents. Like I say, it's, it's all tied in with this sort of big slum housing crisis. So there are a lot of sort of investigations and reports. And what you tend to get is quite a lot of witness data. So often they'll interview working class people who've moved out to the suburbs and just go, well, why, why did you do it? And, you know, there's a range of reasons. Like, I, I wanted a better life for my kids. I wanted fresh air. I, you know, I wanted a cheaper rent. You know, things we can all appreciate today. Simon Abernethy there talking to Andy Holding. It's time for our first poetic interlude now from the brilliant Sabrina Marfouz. So here we all are. Um, we're here now in Cambridge to listen to comedy and poetry. And it just amazes me and overwhelms me to think of the history it's taken to create this here now moment. For us all to be sitting in this room together with leather sofas and tables, unable to see where our great-great-grandparents had to be in the 1870s or whenever, for them to meet and make grandparents who would meet to make parents who would meet to make us, and we could go back and back to the beginning of time to add up all the accumulative actions that had to happen to make this here now, but how we do it, I'm not sure, and it would be a bit boring. But here's the thing. We need to think about this shit because we're forgetting it. Forgetting what it means to be alive right now in the this here now, and I'm glad to be the one to tell you that, no, we're not immortal. No matter how much green tea we drink or how well synced all our gadgets are or if we swap sugar for agave nectar we are all gonna die so let's not lie let's not say that we have a 65% more chance of survival if we eat this or don't drink this However many things we tick off the do-good list, there's a twist to this myth. There's 100% certainty that one day we won't wake up. So wake up. As we say in Egyptian, Sahi el-Noum, today, make a change, live every day like it's your last because one day you're going to be right, right? <laughs> like last night, I met a really lovely lobster. A bit like Sebastian the Crab from The Little Mermaid, because she was bright orange with a shaky aversion to danger, but this here was a Cockney lobster version. Now, I'm not a stranger to things talking that shouldn't. I see mouths moving in clouds and all sorts, but anyway, I'm not surprised when the lobster in the pan of bubbling, boiling H2O rolls those beady eyes almost out the sockets like a black pool ball about to fall in the net pockets and claim a game, and she says, I never got to go to the pissing Pacific. <laughs> this may not seem specifically interesting to you. I assume you see all the seas just being the same as every other sea, but it ain't for me. Each mile has different shades of sand and waves that spread their hands in a slightly altered pattern, and you never quite know what kind of plankton you'll be treated to as you move about. But it's me, Larry. We've been married near 15 years now. He hardly ever leaves the ass. Not that he really did mind. I thought I'd find the time someday, any day, one day soon to do all those things on my to-do list, you know? The Pacific, imagine it. Maybe on a Monday, lay on a rock in the sun for at least four hours, get scorched red as a lobster, proper. I mean, I've always been so orange. Get to visit the kids in Scotland. Oh, give me your hand, love. I need to tell you this before I kiss me life goodbye. And with no thought for the serrated pincers, I gave my hand to her and she pinched a pink finger and said, I thought it would linger forever, this, here, now. I didn't ever expect it to end, even though me nan would bend me ear off with stories of getting caught up in a cage and ended up in a pot. I just thought, mate, that is not happening to me. I've got too much shit to do first. I want to learn how to surf, how to spend a whole day not saying anything mean, be mean. 
be something that means I'm someone who's remembered somehow and now, here now, I'm in this pot here now and ow, it fucking burns and it ain't my turn yet. I've still got to let my Larry take me on a whale ride, go see the kids in bloody Scotland. And then my hand stung with a strong sting and the lobster had pinged herself out of the pan. She was standing on the kitchen floor and off scurrying out the door, quickened by love and fear and being so near to death. So yes, I let her go and just had tomato with my tagliatelle. <laughs> and so why did I tell all of that through the Cockney Lobster character when we could have just stuck with the poetry? Oh, maybe irony. Now we've got ourselves into such hot water, the captures of lobster can't keep up with the orders. It's like we won't have it that we're in such trouble. Something else must be bubbling, boiling more than us. Or maybe it was for metaphorical purposes, the turns in the story insert as we learn lobsters have the same brains as us. I don't want to make too much fuss about something you probably eat now and then, but tell me how many human couples you know that stay together 40 years? Lobsters do, so I've heard, but I know there's like biologists in here who might tell me different. Or maybe it's because they look a bit like dinosaurs who've been around since almost dinosaurs, and I think that's cool. Whatever the reason, what I want to leave you with is simple. It's a principle we learn from day dot, but it's one that before we know it, we forgot. Be who you want to be and get where you want to go. Say what is right and kind and take the time to love and laugh and dance and write and run and smile and ask and give and dream and see and change a kiss. Because if not, that day, hopefully far from the this here now, but it will one day be this here now, when the water in the pot is too hot to take and death seems less scary somehow, as it becomes your this here now. You can leave the earth taking about knowing that you played your part in creating the best here now for those yet to come. Thank you, first poem done. And we'll have more from Sabrina a bit later on. Now, we all know that eating certain foods makes us feel good. But what effects does eating these foods actually have on the brain? Hishan Ziaudin is a clinical research associate in the Department of Psychiatry in Cambridge. The interaction between food intake and the brain is actually very complex since there are multiple factors involved. And while we've studied this a lot in animals, looking at what happens if you give an animal a specific kind of food, where you can control the sort of macronutrients, so you can put a rat on a high-fat diet, or you can put it on a high-sugar diet or an only-sugar diet, and you can see what happens to the rat. In humans, that's a lot trickier. So we know that certainly highly rewarding foods do light up the brain, whether you're having them or whether you're just looking at them. The brain reward circuit responds to foods and food stimuli, whether you consume them or whether you view them. Um, high reward food in the sense is, I guess most broadly, we're talking about foods that are very palatable. And that very often means they tend to be high fat, high sugar, or a combination of the two, possibly, you know, high fat, high salt, if you're talking about non-sweet foods. Um, and so that's what we normally think of as palatable foods, and those are usually what we consider rewarding. But however, that's all actually also a very individual trait. So you can have foods that are particularly rewarding to you, and they may not be foods that other people would find rewarding. But your brain will process them in the same way that somebody else's brain might say process a Mars bar. How do you actually study um, the responses to, to food? So the response of the brain when food is either presented visually or whether it's eaten and also the kind of drivers of eating behavior, kind of satiety and hunger and that sort of thing. For a lot of this stuff, we're forced to rely on people's subjective reports. So right now, what people most commonly do to see to measure hunger and satiety is essentially ask people, how hungry are you, how full are you? And you get them to mark it on visual analog scales or some similar measure. Um, 
we can actually explore things in a bit more detail. So one of the t tools that we use uh, is functional magnetic resonance imaging. So we have people in the MRI scanner and we either present them with stimuli such as pictures of highly palatable food. So they're lying in the scanner seeing pictures of ice cream, sundaes, burgers, pizzas, etc. versus soup, salad, ribita. And we can look at how their brain responds to two different kinds of food and also to foods versus non-food items. So that's one technique we've used. The other thing that we've done is actually try very hard to see if there are other ways in which we can get beyond this subjective measure of how hungry are you, how full are you. And that becomes quite challenging. And one of the things that we've experimented with a bit is using motivation. And the idea being that the hungry you are, the more motivated you will be to get food. And so we get people to squeeze on grip force transducers to actually win food. So they come in fasted and hungry, and then they're playing a game where essentially the harder they squeeze, the more food they're likely to win. We have come across some other interesting findings from that, which is mainly that, unsurprisingly, people will work harder for food when they're hungry. After you satiate them on one particular food, they'll stop squeezing for that food, but they'll still squeeze for a different kind of food. And that exploits this phenomenon of sensory-specific satiety, or what we more commonly experience as the dessert effect. So people will stop squeezing for pizzas after they've had a lot of pizza, but they'll still squeeze for chocolate brownies. And that happens regardless of whether they know what they're squeezing for. So we present these things to people under both conscious and subliminal conditions. And even under the subliminal condition, when they have no idea what they're squeezing for, they'll still squeeze harder for things that they haven't had compared to things that they have had. Focusing a little bit onto the sort of reward pathway idea, um, these pathways in the brain that sort of light up when you eat a rewarding food, are these reward pathways similar to the ones that we see lighting up during drug use, so drugs like cocaine? To an extent. So there is a, a particular reward circuitry within the brain, which involves some basal brain structures, as the ventral striatum and the, the basal ganglia, and then the orbitofrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex in the front of the brain. And that's certainly part of a common reward circuitry, which is highly interconnected. So it seems like there's there are enough connections going in and out of the circuitry to monitor input coming in from the environment, input coming in from the senses, input coming in from the internal state of the body, including how hungry, how thirsty you are, and so on. Uh, and so it seems to be the same circuit that's involved in processing different kinds of rewards, so foods, drugs, sex, whatever it may be. They all seem to ultimately go by the same circuit. But that's a fairly superficial view. Now, the idea in drugs addiction has always been that actually drugs seem to hijack the circuit that was originally designed for natural rewards like food. And to a certain extent, that's true. The drugs are certainly using the same circuit. But there have been some very interesting studies that have actually looked at neuronal firing within some of these key areas, such as the nucleus accumbens. And they found that there are different populations within the same structure that respond to cocaine, that respond to water, that respond to food. So while it's the same circuit, it's not the same cells. There are different sub-circuits within the circuit that seem to process different kinds of rewards. And can we, can we realistically talk about food addiction as such? 
Um, at the present, no. Because I think we've got a reasonably clear idea of what addiction is. Uh, and it's something that we've defined largely in the context of drugs. There has been quite a move towards defining addiction in the context of behaviors, such as pathological gambling, which is considered to be in some ways a behavioral addiction. And then a set of disorders that we call impulse control disorders, such as trichotillomania, which is compulsive hair pulling. And there is a move to sort of think of some of these as behavioral addictions. But our strongest basis essentially lies in drugs and alcohol as addictive substances. So we've got a fairly clear idea of what that phenomenon means, both in terms of a clinical perspective and the underlying neurobiology. At the moment, we don't really have a clinical picture of what food addiction would be. And we certainly don't have any neurobiology to really support the idea that this is a phenomenon that's happening. We've got some very interesting work in animal models that does seem to suggest that, you know, there, that you can engender some sort of addictive type phenomena uh, in animals if you feed them high fat, high sugar foods in particular regimes. So at present, I don't think we've got the evidence, but there, there are enough strands, largely from the animal work, that suggest that it's something worth pursuing. Uh, because it looks like there might be a, a phenomena of that sort under play. But nothing by any part support the extrapolation to humans. Hello. I didn't realize this was about endangered species till five minutes ago. <laughs> so I'm very sorry about that. I'm a psychiatrist and I study eating behavior. And what I'd like to do is tell you what might be a true story in time. And I'd just like to project us forward 10 years in time and tell you about the history of the future of food addiction. <laughs> On the 5th of September, 2017, chocolate was declared an addictive substance in the UK and the EU. That this momentous occasion actually received very little attention initially because the only immediate consequence was that the Belgian economy collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> However, one month later, when the legislation actually came into force, the full import of this change became apparent. Indeed, what is remembered most from that period is the tragic events of what is now thought of as. Black Halloween. <laughs> Slowly, but it got there. <laughs> and there are still the scars of that event very widely felt inside the number of parents who overnight became abusers of their children and other people's children and had their children taken into care, and that's never been quite resolved yet. And in fact, the inquiry into the inquiry about what happened to Black Halloween <laughs> essentially concluded that when the legislation came into place, actually, the politicians had nothing to base this on. So they just went for what they used for drugs. And so if chocolate was addictive, we'll treat it exactly like we treat drugs that are addictive. So people were arrested for possession, people were arrested for distribution, <laughs> and on and on. Right. Okay, now, the thing is that once it was declared an addictive substance, there are some things that just naturally flowed from there. Because if chocolate is an addictive substance, one, we ought to do something about it, right? You've got to regulate it. You can't just let it be there. I mean, it'd be like selling cigarettes in Tesco, for God's sake. <laughs> the second thing is, 
if it's an addictive substance, where are the addicts? I mean, they've got to be addicts, right? Because otherwise, how the hell are you an addictive substance? You know, it's a bit like being a white supremacist in Chipping Norton. <laughs> so there's got to be something out there. And the third thing is, well, if there are addicts, we ought to be doing something to treat them. And so plans followed from there on with very interesting consequences. The first thing was that, well, you had to regulate chocolate. And if you've been to regulate chocolate, then certain things happened very quickly. No more multi-packs. You had to put a minimum size restriction on assortment boxes. Large numbers of illegal chocolate productions had to be confiscated and burnt. You had to worry about people possibly overdosing, even though you had no idea what the hell would happen if they did <laughs> And the consequence of this was that the chocolate trade was very quickly driven underground. And chocolate just happens to be one of those products that's perfect for distribution. I mean, they worked out the packaging, it's in convenient containers, can be easily stored, doesn't need any special conditions. I mean, anybody could just carry it around in a pocket for God's sake. <laughs> so that was the first thing that happened. I mean, there were much more far-reaching consequences of that, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Because the other pressing issue that emerged was, well, where were the addicts? And there were certainly certain aspects of society that worked very hard to discover these addicts. And in this regard, the work of Jeremy Kyle has always been highly commended. <laughs> and there were droves of people who did come out of the woodwork and say, well, you know, actually, I am a food addict. Uh, but they just weren't enough to actually sustain the pressure for this being an addictive substance. Now, I should set the context for what, what all this came into being from. The World Health Organization declared that obesity had gone from being an epidemic to being a pandemic. That was one. Second, in the early noughties, there were a set of interesting studies that came out saying that actually you could get rats addicted to bacon and cheesecake uh, and cookies. And now this was serious stuff, you know, I mean, rats were getting addicted to cookies and cheesecake. I mean, if they were having horrible reaction to cosmetics, we'd all be up in arms. <laughs> so this was really serious stuff. And so they worked out that actually there were ways you could get rats addicted to all this stuff. It didn't happen if you just let them hang around the stuff. You had to really put them in a cage and say, well, this is all you get to eat. <laughs> and then in time, they would actually kind of get addicted to it, to the point of actually you know, walking over at five grids to get cheesecake, which is a very compelling image. <laughs> and so if rats could get addicted, well, it was just a matter of time before something like this happened to humans, and surely something had to be done about this. And there emerged this great lobby that said, well, you know, this is potentially addictive. We've got all this stuff that's unhealthy, it's unnatural, it's all processed. We need to do something to protect people. And thus came that mantra that has haunted us through the years. We need to do it for the children. <laughs> and really, there were certain ardent supporters of the whole idea that food might be addicted. And their master stroke was actually in getting mum's net on board. <laughs> From there, the path to action legislation moved very quickly. And chocolate, indeed, was actually only the first substance because it was an easy candidate. It was a sitting duck, so to speak, because it was very clear. It was manufactured, it was high fat, it was high sugar. It was much easier to deal with than think about, well, how much topping needs to go on a pizza before it actually becomes addictive? <laughs> you know, if you really pile up the mozzarella, it's a really high fat pizza. And that was a much more complicated issue. And the committees were still debating that. I mean, the preliminary documents had come out. But chocolate was a surefire go. Okay? So then, 
Well, if there's if there's supposed to be addicts and there's something about obesity, surely now there are some people there who clearly must be addicts. And that led to a huge stigma and a lot of people being forced into treatment programs, which actually didn't have any idea what to do. I mean, Paul McKenna wrote a book saying, I can make you give up chocolate. I mean, that was the state of the science of the field. <laughs> <laughs> and several people suffered for this, for the, you know, just because of this legislation. There were several overweight people who lost their homes and their jobs and ended up on the streets where they were forced to actually adopt more traditional cures for being overweight, such as homelessness and heroin. <laughs> but the third thing was they thought that since we've got to do something to set up this treatment, there was a massive investment in the NHS, the Development of Food Addiction Services, largely based on Paul McKenna's book, <laughs> because that was the only resource available. And thus, tremendous amount of actual NHS funding was diverted into the development of food addiction services for a condition that nobody knew really existed or not. Now, this was a very sad state of affairs, and the guidelines about chocolate cake and pizza were well on the way to being released fairly shortly. There was a very strong group that was actually campaigning against this idea. They're looking, we've got nothing to support this, and we really shouldn't be doing this is really madness. One of the things that got people really worried was when chocolate went underground, the number of illicit chocolate dealers just spiked. You know, and then they were at all levels. You had middle-class dealers who say, "Want some green and black?" <laughs> and then there were dealers in street corners selling chocolates to children, and it's all become something truly horrible. But what really was the monster stroke there was when the Colombians figured that chocolate was more profitable than cocaine, <laughs> and the Taliban decided that actually it was better to get their farmers to forcibly grow sugar rather than grow poppy. <laughs> and that's when people realized it was serious. And there was a, 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 um, an attempt made to actually come to a worldwide agreement on something needs to be done about chocolate. But at that point, the economies, China and India, which were nearly emerged at that point in time, said, well, you guys have had your chocolate all these years. We're not going to give up our chocolate just when we started getting it. <laughs> OK. But, Various supporters, various celebrities, various celebrity chefs got in the case of we need to do something about this. And I just want to quickly tell you what actually led to the change and what opened up this debate at this point in time in 2023 about why we need to look at this again. There were three main events. The first was the psychiatry community said, well, look, we don't really have a treatment for this. We don't think this is a real condition. <laughs> The moment the psychiatrist said that, the Scientologists said we're, we're anti-psychiatry, immediately were up in arms. And they said, well, no, this definitely exists. And in the, this was a rare occasion where the Scientologists were actually part of the majority view. And this got people thinking, hold on, the Scientologists actually agree with us. You know, something might be wrong here. <laughs> the second thing was Professor David Nutt, who was former chief advisor to the Drugs Advisory Board, who had been unceremoniously booted out by Alan Johnson for saying that we should have more sensible policies on drugs, went on Breakfast TV to talk about exactly the same issue with regards to chocolate and suffered a massive coronary <laughs> in a heated argument. And that got people thinking too, and they felt quite bad. But really, the killer, the killer argument was when one of the major campaigners against the idea former celebrity chef Heston Blumenthal, who had lost the Fat Duck restaurant in the course of this legislation. <laughs> Heston Blumenthal 
was publicly crucified in Trafalgar Square by dragonmothers.net, the militant arm of Mum's Net. And as his last meal, he was served tofu shaped elegantly into a sponge with vinegar jus on a crown of tomato vines. And at that point, people said, this has gone too far. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Hishan Ziauddin. Well, that's it for this Bright Club Highlights podcast. A huge thank you to Simon Abernethy, Hishan Ziauddin, Andy Holding and Sabrina Marfuz, as well as all of the great performers on the night. We'll leave you now with a couple of final musings from Sabrina. The toilet barks as I dare to enter the silver arc of pink painted walls and winking mirrors. Talk of tarts and smells of farts smothered in. What perfume are you wearing? A blind lipstick by the blocked up sink. I begin to think about what a night this hasn't been. About how I'd have rather been in bed watching Alan Sugar on TV when I hear what's being said by some skinny slonies next to me. I swear I didn't actually used to be this fat. I swear my rap had in more in it than that. Her rather round and rosy friend then bends a reassuring arm around her waist, takes a tube of toothpaste from her bag, rubs it around her teeth, licking at the taste. Another girl then stumbles in, crying. My date wouldn't buy me dessert, said I was looking chunky, then put his hand up my skirt. Do I look like a slag? No answer. I try to speak, but a crazy lady with a bleeding cheek rushes in for a plaster. What happened? I asked her. Oh, this is me favourite bloody tune. I love the beat, I love the pace. But when I shock out to it, my earrings cut me in the face. I nod and shake a hairspray can, knocking a hooker in the nose. It's numb. She smiles, striking a highly paid pose. One spray, one palm from the attendant in the corner who's seen it all before but doesn't really care as long as no one pukes on the floor. So there's me, standing silently in the open door, wondering profoundly if this place this space of flushes, blush of brushes, confessions of crushes, of bitching, rip dress stitching, nylon knicker itching, of red stains, head pain, shouts of I can't fake it again, of double drops, lollipops, shouts of just make the spinning stop, of truth, uncouthly, cubically coughed, is actually the place to be. It's about fatness. <laughs> Down another hill, me belt's gone. Down another hill, so I pull it tight. It's gonna be another night until me tucked in, air sucked out. All these scallies talking about how they like them big. It's a myth put about by those who don't know now. Yeah, Beyonce's got class on that, but still, I don't want to look hourglass. I want to look ill. <laughs> Down another hole, although it seems so much smaller now and there's no rabbits to be found. This time I've got to find my own way around. Tickling twigs, taunt my hair and fingers, fine mud making moons on the floor. The very small door is too, too tiny for me now. Since I had Alice Junior, you know, even I've had to adjust my belt to go down another hole. My food goes in one, out one, and down one. Then I gargle, spit, champagne sip, hair flick, oh shit, breath stinks, gum chew, float back through to the bar. I'm a goddamn superstar. <laughs> but even I wish I could go down another hole. I don't give a damn if it ruins the design. See the buttons all the way to me bum. You ain't getting over me and that like that. Trying to make me look fat. Do you want me to look fat? Do you think I look fat, you fucking twat? <laughs> Do you really think I look fat? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>